Hi there. You're joining us for our podcast from August the 15th. So going forward, we are going to be doing things a little different here on the podcast version of our worship. Whereas before it was typically our entire worship, we are going to be cutting it down to just the scripture, the sermon, and the benediction. You are free to join us on the line at our YouTube website, where we do have more or less the entire worship. If you would like it in its entirety, please reach out to our church office and let our secretary know that you would like a CD copy of our worship. Those are more or less completely unedited. The only thing I do is I go in and raise it so that the levels are the same across the entire worship. I'm sorry if this causes any confusion uh, going forward, but we're just trying to make sure that we are correctly following the terms of our CCLI licensing. Have a wonderful day. May God be with you. Our scripture today comes from Matthew 33 through, sorry, Matthew 5, 33 through 48. About the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus continued teaching his disciples and those who were listening. He's continued with, again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord those vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All of you need, all you need to do is simply say yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, it may be, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his, son to, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the, the tax collectors doing that? Tax. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing? Oh yeah, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. 
to be more perfect than me, apparently, in reading this today. Ay, ay, ay. All right, I think I can wander for the first half of this sermon. It's one of those sermons where between everything going on and the amount of reading I did, I only got to worship on time because I have an alarm set to remind me to come to get my, my uh, mic pack on. So as I start today's sermon, I have a couple of clarifications and corrections. First off, we are continuing with the brethren forerunners. But to call them the brethren at this point is kind of anachronistic. They didn't call themselves that. Of course, they called themselves the church. Others call them the dunkers, the, the German word for Baptist. So I will be using kind of interchangeably brethren and dunkers, but all the same, I am referring to this group that was started by Alexander Mack and the other seven at Swartzenau. So if you hear me say dunkers, I'm referring to the same group. Second off, I made a mistake. It's Christoph Sauer, Jr., not Christopher. And I may say Christopher more than once because apparently I can't remember the name Christoph. And a clarification with them, there's Junior, who we see up here. There is his dad, Senior, who I'll try to remember to call Senior. And then he has a son, Christoph Sauer III, who he barely gets any mention today. So it's easy to just say Christoph Sauer III the couple times he gets a mention. Now, the year is 1778. And... You know, even by today, by then standards, at 57, Sauer really wasn't that old. I mean, 57's not old. Even in those days, and I, we, I know we say like, oh, but they died so young back then. That's true, the average lifespan was shorter, but that's because a lot more people died at like, before they turned 20. So it drags the number down. If he made it to 60, statistically, he was gonna make it to 75. A lot of men made it up to that. If They made it to 60. And he was 57. He was almost there. He's got another good 20 years in him. As you can see, he didn't quite make it 20 years, but he still made it a little while longer. But another truth is that at 57, you are probably not as spry and quick as you were when you were 18 or 20. I think that can also be considered general truth, right? So... That did mean that his morning wasn't going so well because the 18, 20, maybe 16-year-old kids behind him were a lot quicker than he was, and he kept getting poked in the back with bayonets. It would have been maybe a little easier if his day had been a little easier starting with in the first place, but it hadn't. First off, his clothes had been taken away. Then they painted him red and black, the color of traitors. Then they held him down and they forcibly cut up his beard and hair. I think the correct way to say is cut up. They weren't giving him a haircut. They were embarrassing him on purpose. Then they gave him, I guess you could call it clothing. That's a very generous thing. It was apparently so full of holes that to call them a pants and shirt was, again, extremely generous. They also took his shoes there's a story that goes that someone did give him some shoes along the way, but as soon as they were out of sight of the man who had given the shoes, they took the shoes back away from him. 
So he was forced to march 20 miles that day, barefoot. Thankfully, it was May and not, you know, December. But forced to march the 20 miles in front of these bayonets from his home in Germantown to the military camp at Valley Forge. He was to be tried and hanged as a traitor. Now, thankfully, he had a lot of supporters, a lot of friends among the English and the Germans, and they came and they spoke up for him. And so instead of being killed, he was let go. But all of his considerable wealth, all of the equipment that he ran his business with, that was all confiscated, along with his home. He would also lose his two eldest sons, Christopher Sauer III, and the son whose name I cannot recall. He would lose them because unlike him, they had chosen a side, a side that would eventually lose and they would move to England in order to, well, not be tried as traitors. Despite all this, despite all the loss, despite the pain, Sauer was never embarrassed by this. He never felt he was wrong. He never said, oops. Because what had led him there was his faith, his conscience. He followed the Bible as he read it, and for that he never felt that he had done anything wrong. He had trusted the God who had led him there, and he never lost his self-respect. To this day, his brothers and sisters have never lost their respect for him either. He's still a beloved member of our community, though one of the saints above. We often print his motto in our bulletins, in our sermons, and for us personally, we have it stamped into the concrete of our church. For the glory of God and our neighbor's good. I do apologize if this story makes you a little uncomfortable. It makes me a little uncomfortable because I know those young men with the bayonets had not had an easy year before. This was 1778. 77, 78 winter at Valley Forge is the one that we remember in our histories today as some of the darkest times during the revolution. To be fair, 78, 79 was a lot worse, but we don't talk about it. Anyway, they were fighting for the freedom of this country, and it's hard to see them as anything other than heroic. But if there's one thing that history tells us about war, it's that no one is perfect. No one is angelic in this world, and war brings that out more than anything else. You might be the good guys, but that doesn't mean you don't do bad things sometimes. I know that's the way a lot of superhero movies have moved these days, reminding us that even our heroes make mistakes. And for those like Sauer, those who refuse to take a side to remain neutral, what often ends up happening is you aren't viewed neutral by those who are on the sides. They look at you and they say, because you're not on my side, therefore you must be on the other side, and therefore you must be an enemy. 
But Christopher Sauer Jr. was, at his day, the most prominent voice among the pacifist and among the German Pennsylvania Dutch. He refused to take a side. He refused to allow himself to be an example to others as to what to do in taking a side. He refused to take an oath. He refused to take up or support the taking up of weapons. All for his faith. And for his faith, he suffered. For his community, he struggled. Sauer had a long relationship with the brethren. Now, to be fair, saying a long relationship in this day is only going back one generation. I mean, Alexander Mack Sr. was still alive up until a very short time before this story. But his dad, uh, uh, Christopher, uh, Christoph Sauer Sr., had been friendly with the Max back in Schwarzenau, along with the other early brethren. In fact, Mac moved in 1720 to go to the Netherlands, and then later went on to, to the Pennsylvania colony. And when he moved, Sauer bought his old house. I can't say for sure that Sauer Jr. was born in that house, but it's about the right time. He was 1721. But he probably had no memories of Germany because by 24, Sauer Sr. had moved the family to Germantown, Pennsylvania, and then on over to Lancaster. Well, what would become Lancaster? And yes, as a Pennsylvanian, it's pronounced Lancaster. You all can say Medina. I'm still saying Lancaster, not Lancaster. Anyway. He moved out there with his young son, Junior, and his wife, Christina Maria. There he became a tailor and a farmer for a little bit. His wife became enamored with this man named Conrad Beisel. That name might ring a little bell in the back of your head. I know I've written at least one newsletter with him in it. Beisel had been called out to be the minister to the Conestoga Church, the second church of the brethren here in the United States, the colonies at that time. But he didn't get along very well with other brethren ministers. He had some crazy ideas, and that's saying something for the early brethren. We are pretty crazy anyway. Eventually, he broke off, and he formed a separatist communal society as if we modern-day brethren had monks and nuns at the Ephrata, which we call the Ephrata Cloister today. And Christina Maria decided to join him there, and she would eventually rise to prominence and be well-known as Sister Marcella. If I recall correctly, some of her poetry even survives to this day. She was well-known for that among being the leader of the women. When she left him, Sauer Sr. couldn't make the ends meet anymore. It was just him and his son, and they didn't have enough manpower to manage the farm and to do the tailoring. So he picked up again. He moved back to Germantown, where he settled down and started his print shop. Christina Maria eventually had a falling out with Conrad Beisel in the community and moved back and joined. It's important to know that because Christina Maria was willing to join a group that was extraordinarily structured. 
where you would have to wake up in the middle of the night every night to go pray. That was expected and compulsory. That you were expected to do certain works during the day. That you were expected to eat a certain diet. And I say expected as if there was a choice to do something else. There really wasn't. That was not true at all for Sauer Sr., her husband. He was a staunch separatist. He would never allow himself into that. Now, we, we did discuss the separatist just a little bit last week, or a lot of it. Because let's face it, Alexander Mack and the other early ones, they were all separatists before they formed a church. And the separatists were radical pietists. They called on the church to focus on biblical study, to focus on living a Christian life, to focus on, for my line, oh, and to have the laity being fully engaged in the church. And the separatists went beyond what the regular pietists did and said, look, all these problems that we see in the church, they're all happening because you guys made structure because you made rules that's supposed to happen like this, and we're making these rules, and that's how it happens. Making the rules was the problem. You need to remain free and independent. Church structure, bad. Well, and then as we know, Alexander Mack and the other seven decided that they were going to make a new church structure, <laughs> which ended up causing um, some hard feelings. To the point that even Hockman, who we discussed again last week, the man who wrote to, to Mac and said, my friend, count well the cost before entering the water for baptism. Even he ended up having a big fight with Alexander Mack in which the two of them really never ever talked again. They were just too angry. I will say that Hawkman did later write that he thought that one day they would meet again in paradise and Mac would see him and embrace him and said, here comes Brother Hawkman. They were willing to forgive and forget. I like that. Anyway, Sauer Sr. was not quite as willing to be outwardly judgmental, at least, of these brethren who had become a sect, who had created a structure which he didn't like. Now, I can't say that he was giving approval of it either. It still had a great deal of mistrust. He didn't think that structures made by humans could be, well, trusted. So, while he was their biggest supporter, he always held them at arm's length never willing to submit himself to the rules that he felt others were going to make up for him. All the same, the first place that the brethren met in this country that wasn't in someone's house was Sauer's printing shop in his upper floor. He gave us our first sanctuary. He wasn't, though, just a hero to us. He was a hero among the Pennsylvania Dutch, the Pennsylvania Dutch, the Pennsylvania Germans. They thought we were Dutch. We weren't Dutch. We were German. The German word for German is Deutsch. Still, you see people play it up, and they put Holland-like windmills up for tourists to come take pictures in front of. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, 
But he was a hero among the Pennsylvania Germans. He was brilliant. He was hardworking. He taught himself 26 different trades. He was never apprenticed. I mean, that's, you know, he just picked it up and he learned it himself. He never went to anybody for help. He was always looking for things to help his community. So when he came back to Germantown, he started that printing press because there was only one other printing press in the area. It was run by this guy, Franklin, Benny Franklin, I think. And he didn't like to write in German, so he only wrote for the English. So Sauer struggled, and apparently it was a big struggle to get the type font, like the little pieces of metal. Those were hard to get. But he struggled, and he managed to get that font, and he managed to print for us the first pamphlets, the first almanacs, the first newspapers in German. So finally, those here in, in the United, well, in the colonies, could read and write to a large audience that they could communicate, that they could get news. Sauer went on, and he connected with the local Quakers, he was the first one to bring what we call the historic peace churches together, the Brethren, the Mennonite, and the Quakers. And it was a good thing, too, because he needed their help eventually. Because the other two major groups, the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, didn't like the Pennsylvania Germans too much. They decided they were too German. They called them us the dumb Dutch. Ouch. Uh, not the most imaginative name, but that's what they called us. So they decided to create a school that would teach the German to be English and Anglican. The Quakers, supporting the Mennonites, the Brethren, the Separatists, came together and stopped that scheme. He was a hero on those many levels already, but he had one major last heroic thing. In 1743, using Luther's translation, he gave us our first Bible here in the U.S. It was actually the first European language Bible ever printed in this country. And for the first time, our people, those who said Bible study is essential, we could have our own copies of the Bible in our homes. And he made sure of it by going around to wealthy donors, Quakers, Mennonites, brethren, even Presbyterians. I don't know if the Anglicans gave money or not. I just don't know. And he begged them for money so that even servants could afford to buy their own Bible. And these things were massive. I've had the joy of holding a third edition. Things like, like this Bible's kind of small compared to it. These things were massive. They were an extraordinary, you had to put an extraordinary amount of work into making just one printing, and it would take years to do. I tell you all of this about him, Sauer Sr., about Christina Maria, Sister Marcella, so you get an idea of the kind of giants 
that Sauer Jr.'s parents were. It was a man who fundamentally changed this country in many ways. A woman who helped reshape poetry and religion for women in this country as well. That's a lot to live up to. But Sauer Jr., despite living in their shadow, managed to make his own way in the world and to cast just as big a shadow for us. Now, yes, he did also continue the work of his dad. Two more printings of the Bible, which again, no small feat. Not to mention the first brother in hymnal, which I'm sure you can all appreciate, plus pamphlets and newspapers and all the other work that his dad had done. But he also did things different. Unlike his mom and actually his best friend, Alexander Mack Jr., he was unwilling to enter into a group that would say this is the rules to the people at the cloister. But unlike his dad, he was unwilling to remain completely independent. He thought community was more important. And so at age 15, he entered the water. By age 26, he was called to the ministry. And by age 31, he was ordained as a pastor and an elder in the church. And when Mac Jr. left the cloister and came back, those two young men, along with a few others, picked up the mantle of their parents and turned this new church into a generational church. So many faiths fail when the first generation dies. The fact that the second generation could pick it up and make it work and continue to grow it is something amazing. Especially considering Pennsylvania was not Germany or the Netherlands. You know, back there in the old country, as they might have said, I have no idea if they called it the old country then. But back in the old country, you were looked down on by being a radical or an Anabaptist. You could be killed. You, could th always th uh, you were always threatened with expulsion. So you never knew if the house you were working on, on those fields that you were planting, whether you would be able to reap the reward of doing all that work. At any moment, it could be taken away from you, and you would become a refugee or a prisoner or a martyr. But here, here, yes, there was prejudice. They called you the dumb Dutch. But there was also a lot more safety and freedom. This land would be yours. This house would be yours. And so the community grew. Close communal ties, because the English didn't want anything to do with them often. But it grew and it prospered thanks to hard work and supporting one another. And so they faced this problem as this new church grew and expanded in this country without the same pressures that their parents had, had lived through. How is the faith going to survive in this space where those pressures don't exist? You know, faith really is highly affected by the world we live in, by those pressures. And I just look at the last 40, 50 years. When my parents went to school, 
they had to do they had to do drills where they would go and hide underneath their desk because there was a possible nuclear blast. Now, I was born in 86. By 91, the USSR had fallen. So I was in that fun age where half the map said USSR and half the map said Russia. And all of them still said Yugoslavia, apparently, because no one changes that. So I never experienced that. I never worried about that. But I was in school during Columbine when all of a sudden school shootings were on the main stage. Truth be told, they were always there. They were always happening here in the States. But for the first time, it was on the main stage, and then numbers started to rise. So while my parents worried about nuclear war, I worried about school shootings. They worried about things well beyond their control. Outside where people in white buildings, in marble buildings, decided whether today was the day they were going to kill each other. My generation worried about whether the person sitting next to you would get so angry with you one day they would come in and kill you all. Your faith has to work a little differently in each place. Faith is transformed. Faith is reworked to meet the problems. Because God meets us where our problems are. And that's where our problem was, as opposed to my parents. And for the Sour Mac Juniors, their problem was different than their parents. You know, when, when conflict arose in Germany, for the Anabaptist and the radical pietist, your, your place was either you were being trampled on while armies walked back and forth across each other, or you were being trampled on purposely because you were the enemy. But here, here in the colony, well, not here, we were in Ohio, in the colony of Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia where the, the brother and all lived, there the problem was a little different. The Mennonites, the brethren, were wealthy. They were landowners. They were spread out. They had many members. And so each side wanted them to join them. The royalists wanted them. The colonials wanted them. So how were they going to work in this new situation? Where they weren't the ones being attacked, but the ones being courted to attack. Even the Pennsylvania Colony House passed a law requiring every independent white man to take an oath of allegiance and then to pay taxes to support the war effort. Sauer looked to his Bible. Sauer looked to his Bible and read as his parents and mentors had taught him, and then he read in light of the world that he was living in. And he read passages like today. You know, today's passage, Jesus gives us three quick rules. First off, don't take oaths. Second off, don't demand recompense for evil, but instead return with good. And third, love your enemies. You know, in the ancient of days, like the ancient days, you called on God to basically kind of seal your vows, your promises. It was a way of saying, 
I will promise to do this, and if I don't, God, God's self, will punish me. Jesus points this out as being problematic. Look, you can't even control what color your hair is with the power of thought. They, you know, dye differently. I mean, if I could do that, I'd have a lot more. I'm sure I'm not the only one in here who would have a lot more. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> wishes. Wishes. <laughs> you, don't, you should not be living the kind of life where you need to call on God to guarantee your honesty. You should be living the kind of life where it's obvious you are an honest person. Your yeses should mean yes, and your noes should mean no. And there's another problem. What if you give your vow to the wrong person? What if you give your allegiance to the wrong person? You know, we're told in the story, and it's, it's about money then, that you can only serve one master in that story, either God or mammon. But that's true across all of our lives. We can only serve one master, God or something else. And if you are giving your vow by God to serve someone, what if that person then tells you to do something that would go against what you are taught by God? Should you follow your vow that you promised that to God that you would follow this person? Or should you break that vow and follow your original vow to follow God? The answer being, don't give vows. Don't give oaths of allegiance to anyone. Rely only on your allegiance to God. And so, by this, Sauer refused to follow the law. He refused to give an oath of allegiance to any group. Both Sauer Sr. and Sauer Jr. refused to take sides. They were outspoken critics of both the crown and the, and the colonial government. Their primary worry was following as they read the Bible and to protect their German brothers and sisters and be good journalists for them. They wanted to inform them of changes, they wanted to inform them of how new policies would affect them. But they didn't call for the taking up of arms. They didn't fall, call for any kind of violence in response. Instead, they called for the people to be good, productive, to lead good, productive lives, to live upright lives, to build their strength, and then to use that strength to support themselves and other members of the community in the face of pressures that would have forced them under otherwise. And as the war became inevitable, as violence erupted up in Massachusetts and quickly spread down the seaboard through all of the colonies, Sauer would face an even more difficult problems. He couldn't take up arms. He couldn't financially support the taking up of arms. Instead, the, Revo sorry. the Revolutionary War, as we remember it now, seems very one or two. 
You know, it's the royalist redcoats coming from England, coming here and fighting the colonials. And the truth is a lot more messy than that. People were turning their neighbors in. They were turning their neighbors into the royal, to the, the, the redcoats, saying, this person is a rebel. And, the rev and those others would turn to the, uh, to the colonial government and say, that person over there is a loyalist. They would turn on each other's. It may have been a revolution, but it was also a civil war. And people didn't always turn others in because of their own political leanings. They just as often turned them in because once you did that, guess who got the property? Guess who got the wealth? Guess whose influence was now gone and you could take that vacuum? Sauer looked at this chaos, at the neighbors shedding each other's blood. So he used his wealth. He used his influence for what he thought was best. He urged his brothers and sisters to take their money, to take their land, to take their influence and help orphans and widows and refugees and anyone else who was in need of help. This really didn't make the royalists or the colonials very happy. Neither of them cared for this man. It probably bugged the colonials a little bit more than the other because they were much more cash-strapped. And so, the colonial government arrested Christoph Sauer, Jr., took him to Valley Forge and stripped him of everything he had. His son, who did take a side, Sauer Jr. III, would eventually go to New York and then to the British, uh, Britain. He did take a side. Unlike his father, he was unwilling to remain staunchly in the middle. I'm sure he had his own reasons. Sauer Jr. would go on to take loans from others to support himself. And then he would take those loans in order to find work as a bookbinder, among other things, so that first off, his younger children would be supported until they could get their own feet underneath them. And second off, so that when he died, he could do so debt-free. He wanted to continue to support his community. He never wanted to take from it. As we continue this journey of the forerunners, through all of their struggles towards today, we see how with Mac... They struggled to become independent and new and different and what that led to in them being pushed out of their homeland. With Sauer, they had found their new homeland and they needed to now learn how to live their faith despite all the pressures pushing in on them, trying to get them to change from what they said they believe to what they wanted them to believe. 
the church will continue to struggle. People will, content, will continue to demand your loyalty over God. You know, I said that every generation deals with new problems and our faith has to be applied in new ways. But that doesn't mean that everything is new under the sun. Because let's face it, we live in a world still just like Sour Junior, just like Sour Senior, just like Max Senior and Junior that demand us to go their way and not God's way. Now, I doubt that any of us are going to be asked to make a choice between giving an oath to our government or that government or any government or being paraded 20 miles barefoot dressed in rags with red and black painted all over us and our beards hastily and rudely chopped, at least those of us who have nice beards. But our choices, our faith, sometimes demand that we will have to make decisions that are going to be less popular for those who wish it to be otherwise. So, are you willing to go all the way? For the glory of God and your neighbor's good. Thank you. There is a series of questions that are asked when, I believe it's, it's Presbyterians are entering into ordination. And there's a question that's not often asked this much anymore, but I find extraordinarily interesting. And the question is, are you willing to go to hell in order to forward the kingdom of God? Now, that's coming out of a tradition that believes in basically you're going where you're going, and that's decided, predestination. But I think the question could have been asked to Sour Jr., to Sour Sr., to a lot of the early brethren. Are you willing to live through hell through, for the glory of God? They said yes. And it's a challenge to us in these days to be willing through, to live through the pain and tumults of this world for the glory of God and our neighbor's good. May you walk strong through the chaos. Amen.